Welcome to Bone to Pick, Hip Bone Music's Artist of the Month interview series. I am super psyched to be uh, interviewing one of my all-time favorite musicians uh, today, the great Randy Brecker. Uh, Randy, uh, his his impact uh, on the New York scene, on the jazz world, is immeasurable. He's a virtuosic instrumentalist, uh, a re internationally renowned composer, a five-time Grammy Award winner. He's he's done it all, and he's played with everybody you can possibly imagine. We're just thrilled uh, to be speaking with Randy today. Randy, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoy your website. All right. Thank you, Randy. Uh, let's jump right in. Um, maybe talk a little bit about your uh, uh, childhood. And uh, I know you grew up in the Philadelphia area and went to uh, Cheltenham High School, which for those of you who don't know, has the most unbelievable alumni of, uh, list I've ever seen. You've got Randy and Michael Brecker, Benjamin Netanyahu, Reggie Jackson, Dave right. Fink, Jeff Lorber, Andy Snitzer. It's uh, quite an all-star group. But uh, more than that, uh, I know your dad had a big influence on you uh, in terms of becoming a musician and, and also... Right. Um, in addition to that, uh, just the relationship you and your brother Michael must have had as, as young guys growing up. Could you just sh share some of the memories you had? Well, Dad was a, a semi-professional but really great pianist and singer and songwriter who uh, honed his craft at a music camp, uh, uh, wrote all the camp songs, all the songs for the show. Uh, Mike and I went to this camp, and it was still going strong when we went there. In fact, the uh, musical director, when... We were there at the girls' camp was none other than Marvin Hamlish to show you oh, wow. the level of uh, the, the music program at these camps. But they still, 30 years later, Dad's songs were still part of the uh, repertoire of, of, of these camps. They were great songs. So he was just a big influence. He loved jazz, uh, kind of played like Dave Brubeck, I suppose, in that vein. But he also loved trumpet players. Uh, mainly because, you know, he loved Miles and Dizzy, but growing up in Philadelphia in that time period was the uh, the uh, the period where Clifford Brown was playing in Philadelphia on a regular basis. Mm. So he was the talk of the town, and Dad would talk sure. about him all the time at all the records. When I was about, let's see, he was killed when I was ten years old, uh, ten going on eleven. Uh, so that was. Probably the biggest influence uh, was listening to and hearing about Clifford all the time. Mm. And he had jam sessions. There was another good trumpet player named Bobby Mojica who would come over, who was still playing in Detroit. Uh, so we just grew up with the sounds from earliest recollections. He would get home from work, put on a bunch of records through dinner, and we'd listen to music. And uh, eventually, uh, when we started playing, which I'll get to, we formed kind of a family band. So music was always around the house. When I was in third grade, this was a small school, you know, almost no music program. They had trumpets or clarinets available for the orchestra. And uh, so I grabbed the trumpet. I had my sights. The trombone looked like it was more fun to play, and I liked that <laughs> instrument too, but they didn't have any. As simple as that. So I had heard so much great trumpet playing around the house that I grabbed the trumpet and started to study uh, soon thereafter with uh, Sigmund Herring from the Philadelphia Orchestra. Probably was about nine years old when I started to uh, study with him. Conversely, three years later, they still only had trumpets or clarinets, so Mike got kind of stuck with a clarinet, as he put it, which he never took to, but he also had a very good teacher. His name was 
Leon Lester from the Philadelphia Orchestra. Uh, and uh, after he started playing and I was playing for a couple of years, we used to get together in the bathroom because we liked the echo, and we would just play free. You know, we didn't <laughs> know too much about chord changes at that age or standards. We would just we would just would play. We liked the sound. Uh, and we kind of re-represented that on my first record uh, score where Mike and I played a duet like we, we the basis of the tune was Pop Goes the Weasel which was probably something we played at uh, at that age we played nursery rhymes and we just went for it at That's that great. early age um, and and I recently listened to that record score it was quite inventive the duet you know it was really we were good at it yeah. <laughs> uh, and eventually my sister, who was in between, was classical pianist, and she doubled on bass. And, uh, and we had a set of drums, both Mike and I, particularly Mike, kept up his drum chops. He was a great drummer. So we kind of had a family band. I played a little vibes. So music was always uh, just at the, at the forefront of everything we did in our family. That's great. Well, you, you kind of figure that just, you know, the, the relationship you and Mike had musically, obviously, as brothers, too. Yeah. But it seems like that would be fostered at such an early age. Yeah, great. It, it was amazing. And also, Philadelphia had a lot to do with uh, our interest, too, because it was such a hotbed of musical activity on, in every genre in that town mm -hmm. at that time. Uh, you know, of course, we were studying with players of Philadelphia Orchestra, so we used to go hear them all the time. And that was incredible. But there were, on the other side of the spectrum was American Bandstand, which was emanating from South Philly. Mm -hmm. And we were sometimes allowed to watch it. Dick Clark was uh, a really a jazz fan who would find talent in uh, mostly in South Philly. A lot of the guys were closet jazz musicians. You, you probably know the names like Frankie Avalon uh, was a trumpet player, really, Frankie Avalona, who went to school with Lou and He became a movie star uh, through... Uh, American Bandstand was another guy, I, f I forget his uh, the time, but was, he was known as Bobby Rydell. He was mm. also a pop singer. He was a good jazz drummer, played with Pat Martino when he was wow, young. They had a band together. So there was that element, at, and the show became really popular. So Dick Clark also had a lot of R&B black bands on the show. So that was at least my first recollection of hearing uh, soul music or R&B was on that show and then I discovered an R&B channel right next to the jazz channel on the AM radio station. Of course the uh, what was happening in Philly that time jazz wise is already legendary the Heath brothers were still in town. Coltrane's presence was felt. Benny Golson, Lee Morgan who was just coming up uh, who uh, was taught by my second trumpet teacher, Tony Marcion, who's Nick's father. Mm -hmm. So all these guys were around Philly, so uh, uh, it was an amazing place to be around at that time. Yeah, it sounds like an incredibly fruitful time for that uh, city. Um, following uh, high school, you went to uh, Indiana University and uh, right. studied with Bill Adam, and I guess Jerry Coker was around in, well, in those days. Well, first, yeah, it was uh, Jerry Coker first was uh, Buddy Baker. Mm. Uh, then the, uh, for the first year was Buddy, and he was great too. Roger, Pember, uh, Roger Pemberton. And then uh, uh, Jerry Coker came and started to build up the jazz program. Uh, IU was a great music school in the classical tradition, had a great 
also a fledgling jazz department. There were three big bands, but other mm. than the actual uh, playing or the performance, there was there was no uh, theory program, there was no degree program set. So Coker's uh, was instrumental in at least starting some classes. Mm -hmm. But to to gain more theoretical knowledge, I, I drove to uh, Indianapolis once a week and uh, studied with Dave Baker, who was teaching privately. And he, at that time, also formed a band and had me in the band. He had just started playing cello. David Lam, the pianist, was the pianist in the band. He was living in Indianapolis. And there were also great players in Indianapolis. I was lucky to be there at that time. People that that played with George Russell and, and Slide Hampton was kind of in and out of town. Of course, Freddie was from Indianapolis, so that and and the and the Montgomery Brothers. So that was heavily J.J. Johnson. So that sure. their presence was heavily felt around town, and mm -hmm. I played quite a bit in Indianapolis uh, during that three-year period. Also, this is kind of a strange thing that uh, I'd almost halfway forgotten about, but. Uh, Booker T of Booker T and the MGs was was going to Indiana at at that time my first year to get a degree in music composition. Oh, wow. So he played trombone in the in the band and he liked the way I soloed. So every weekend for about a year and a half he had a local Booker T and the MG band. They did all, I had never heard of him previously, but I kind of upped my stacks repertoire by playing with him on weekends for a couple of years when he was there. Wow, very cool, very cool. Um, so, following Indiana, you went to Europe with the band and then stayed in Europe for, for a bit? Or, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I did. I know your history there. <laughs> well, what happened was, in 1965, we won the Notre Dame Jazz Festival. They had a particularly really good big band that year. So, and I, so I must say, we deservedly won because we were, we were killing. Uh, and one of the... Uh, I forget if it was a prize, but it was the upshoot of our winning uh, that festival. We were given or the opportunity to go on a State Department tour in uh, January or February of uh, 1966. And so instead of going back to class, the band was sent on an extended, it was about three and a half, four months long State Department tour mm. uh, through the Middle East and Asia. Uh, which was fascinating. We got to play quite a bit, but the, we saw all the uh, Arab countries. Uh, we toured throughout India, Sri Lanka, wow. which was Ceylon, Pakistan, uh, Syria, uh, uh, Iran, Iraq. It was amazing. Uh, Coker, midway through the tour, I think, missed his wife too much, so he, 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 he went back. Uh, to Indiana, and Witt Seidner, uh, who was a couple years older than the rest of us, wonderful baritone saxophonist and arranger and writer in his own right, who is now, and for many years, ended up being the head of the music school at uh, University of Florida, now is uh, the chair, mm. there took over the band, and we just continued to tour. It was mm. amazing. Wow. And after which, this is another interesting story, uh, I stayed in Europe. Uh, we saw an advertisement in Downbeat that that summer in Vienna, by now it was, uh, it was a four-month tour, so it was edging in on June, and we were pretty whipped by then, let me tell you, but we're, I think the last city was Beirut. We spent a couple weeks in Beirut, which was beautiful then. Uh, 
there was a, a contest advertised in Vienna, the first international jazz competition. And the judges was set up by a, a Viennese pianist uh, uh, named Friedrich Gulda. And he had hired his judges, uh, uh, Cannibal Adderley, uh, uh, Joe Zawinul, Mel Lewis, Ron Carter, uh, Art Farmer, and uh, JJ. So this was an opportunity too great to pass up. Yeah. So several of us uh, made our way to Vienna and, and uh, checked into a youth hostel for about two weeks where they had final semifinals and we all got to know each other and that that was a fascinating two-week period because also at this festival we're all we were all young kids to be 17 to maybe i was like 20 i think at the time but people like miroslav vitus was there george moraz who I play, playing with tonight 47 years later or whatever it is uh jan hammer frank rabrazetti uh Eddie Daniels had come from the U.S. He was actually playing with that Jones Bell Lewis band, so he had this. He had a. The deck was stacked for him. <laughs> uh, Jigs Wiggum, mm. Claudio Roditi, uh, Tomas Stanko. I'm probably for uh, getting some people that. Uh, and we became really close. Uh, uh, Joachim Kuhn. We became because we were together for two weeks, very close, and mm-hmm. so when. One by one, we made our way eventually to New York. We kind of helped each other, I think. So that was, uh, and they never had that festival again. Mm. I uh, uh, I won second prize by uh, uh, Franco Ambrosetti, who I just played with last month. We hadn't seen each other in 15 years, and he had found out that I he edged me out by a tenth of a point. <laughs> he won first prize, but all these always stayed friends all these years. It's amazing. That's an incredible uh, lineup of talent. Yeah, there. and, and, and so really in the just... second band, we we both performed, and our band was myself, George Mraz, Jan Hammer, among others. Uh, uh, wow! So that's so. a great story. So following that, in 1966, you moved to New York, and can you share some of the thoughts and memories of those those first few years uh, living in New York? Well, instead of going back to IU, I, 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 since I had met all these people, Mel was had been very nice. We got to know him too. In fact, uh, uh, he had just recorded the first Thad and Mel record, and somehow he took me under his wing. I forget the circumstance, but I ended up going back to his hotel room because he wanted to play his new record for Cannonball. So imagine I'm like 19 or 20. How thrilled I must have been! He had a little record player. And I, it was just Mel Lewis, Cannonball, and me, you know, in the room. And he's playing Cannonball with the first Thad Jones record. And he's pointing out where somebody screwed up and uh, Pepper's playing a solo. He's watching. He's going to, he gets hung up on the changes here and they were laughing. You know, it's like two kids. So to me, I thought that was amazing. So he kind of, you know, he said, you should come to New York. So instead of going back to IU, I only had one semester to go. I went to NYU to try to finish the degree. I studied with Ray Crisara there, who was a fantastic player. I got to do a lot of sessions with later. But then I, I slowly got just sucked into the music scene. Clark Turry, who had been a judge at the Notre Dame Festival, called, uh, kindly called and asked me to join his big band. And thing escalated pretty quickly in the New York scene. It was a really exciting time to to be here was kind of the tail end of the traditional jazz studio 
scene mm-hmm. where all those guys are doing all the dates, you know, show up in the date with to the date with a suit and tie. Right. Marvin Stam came to town around the same time, so Clark asked him to join his big band too. So we started helping each other, and uh, we got into the uh, the scene relatively quickly. You know, you show up on a se- session. It's Richard Davis or Ron Carter, or Mel Lewis, and Snooky Young and Ernie Royal and all these amazing Thad doing sessions. Herbie Hancock might be playing piano and Oliver Nelson doing the charts. <laughs> so it was amazing. Yeah, it sounds like an unbelievable time. That's incredible. Um, you know, you're, you're, this story I've heard for years uh, and I've always wanted to ask you about it, but your, your amazing musical uh, dedication and integrity seemed to be at the forefront early in your professional career when you were on Blood, Sweat and Tears. And then uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, I guess, was kind of perched to become the pop icon that yeah. it became. But uh, it wasn't uh, what you were looking for, and you and you left and joined Horace Silver's band. And I, I always found that to be just uh, an incredible, an incredible, inspiring story. But anyway, if you could share, well, there was a little stupidity that. involved too, I know. <laughs> because uh, it's nice that you put it in that framework. And uh, I did, and I did really want to play, so that was the forefront, which is why I left. It was a great opportunity. Horace had been auditioning guys, and he auditioned me maybe six months earlier, and then he, he hired Charles Tolliver, who was trying to float between Horace's band and Max Roach. So one day Horace called me up and said, you got the gig, and it was a great band with Billy Cobham and uh, Benny Maupin and John B. Williams. Mm. Uh, and But at the same time, to tell you the truth, Blood, Sweat, and Tears was trying to up their commercial ante by hiring another lead singer name, whose name was David Clayton Thomas. And uh, uh, previously I had been a sideman, but they, all, they did offer me, they were going to cut everything equally and uh, share in all the profits and all the horn players were going to be. So they really tried to talk me into staying. But I, uh, uh, Al Cooper didn't want uh, to be in a position of not being the lead singer. So we had a meeting one night, and Al quit the band because he didn't want to be in that position. And and I chose that time to tell everybody that Horace had called, and I said, you guys will never make it without Al. It was my last words, and we kind of stormed out of the, the meeting. And uh, uh, the next day, I was kind of in a bind because they had a bunch of gigs, and I had a, a rehearsal with Joe Henderson, big band. My good friend Lou Soloff was sitting next to me. And... Uh, I was making a hundred dollars a week with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and Horace was paying two fifty. So, <laughs> so <laughs> that's it was great. A big raise. Yeah, but yeah. Lou didn't really want to do the gig because there wasn't a lot of. It was a, Blood, Sweat, and Tears was a great band, but uh, you didn't get a chance to play much. It was mostly there were great arrangements by uh, uh, Freddie Lipsius. So I had to kind of talk him into doing it. Mm-hmm. I said, "Just help me out. Try it for a couple weeks." So he kind of relented and he joined the band they went in the studio and recorded the second record which in turn sold 11 million whoa <laughs> and uh i had my gig with horace and i was making 250 a week and uh uh unbeknownst to me he didn't he said he would work three months three weeks a month and we worked maybe two weeks a month and he took taxes out so that left 147.50 <laughs> And out of that, I had to pay my hotel. Mm-hmm. So, but it was a great experience, and it led to uh, you know everything is uh, for a reason. And uh, you know he was still such a big influence on my uh, 
on the on, on just getting me thinking about having a band and writing all the tunes and translating your everyday experiences into music as he did and he was also one of the first really true for lack of a better word fusion artists where he would fuse gospel jazz and his version of R&B or just whatever experience he had to, uh, 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 world traveling crept into his music mm -hmm. um so then in 1968 you recorded you mentioned it earlier your first solo yeah. project which was sc score and uh I'm a proud owner of a vinyl copy oh. and the reissue on CD, and it is a great record. And uh, um, it's interesting. So, did Horace's impact uh, lead you to to making that first record, and what was what kind of got you going in that direction as a solo artist? Uh, well, it was uh, Horace was in there, but it was, I had also joined the Duke Pearson Big Band uh, uh, during that early period. Uh, I forget how Duke got my name, but Marvin was also in that band. Maybe that was part of it, or I've been playing with Clark's band and he heard me. And that was more of a working band than than CT's band or uh, a lot of the other stuff. Not that we made a lot of bread, but we had a pretty regular gig at the Half Note. Mm. And at one point, Duke was also a, a producer for Blue Note in Solid State, so he, he asked me to uh, record. Mm. And I had just started writing some tunes, and I had also uh, formed a relationship with the great Hal Galper, who uh, played with me at a regular gig I had. It's a whole long story, but a club called L'Entrigue, which was a front for a gay club mm. upstairs. But I had a, a steady gig for about six months playing in it, whatever I wanted in, the, in the, the lounge downstairs. It was the front for the club upstairs, which was a big secret. And Hal, uh, who I had heard playing with Phil Woods, uh, played that gig. And uh, I wrote, was kind of writing some tunes for that gig, and he was writing some tunes. So I utilized his expertise in helping me and kind of with this first record. So I wrote half the tunes, and he wrote the other half. And half of it was kind of jazz and kind of folksy melody, and the other half was uh, more funk-oriented, uh, using Bernard Purdy and the great Chuck Rainey, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. who I had done sessions with, uh, and whom uh, Duke Pearson had never heard of. Cause mm -hmm. it was, so this was a new area for him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then following that time period, I guess it was after Horace, and you joined Art Blakey's Jazz yeah, Messengers. Briefly. and. Uh, Clearly, one of the most important uh, groups in, in jazz history. And uh, what was uh, what was your relationship like with Art? Well, that was a thrill. He he was going through his one of his greatest periods. I'm trying to think. Well, this was uh, after Horace broke up the band. We stay, I stayed with Horace for a year and a half. And in California, he wanted to take a break, or he had some reason. But he told us that he was going to break up the band for a while. Mm. So I came back to New York, and somehow. Art got my name, and I, I uh, started playing with him pretty regularly at Slugs, with uh, Carlos Garnett was the uh, saxophonist. Different piano players, Joanne Burkeen was there for a while, a bass player named Skip Crumby. But I hadn't really devoted myself to writing yet, so if, uh, as much as I should have, uh, uh, or else I probably would have taken more advantage of the situation. We were mostly doing some of Carlos... Carlos Garnett's tunes and the classic Art Blakey tunes, you know, Moaning and uh, Night in Tunisia and stuff that I had all the records of. Mm -hmm. uh, so I stayed with him off and on for about a year. Uh, but I, like I said, it was really on and off. And in the off periods, uh, 
uh, uh, Mike had moved to New York and had met uh, Barry Rogers, the great trombonist, mm -hmm. who in turn had a relationship and was talking to two singer-songwriters whose names were Jeff Kent and Doug Luban, who had a bunch of kind of uh, rock and folk-oriented open tunes, I guess, and they wanted to put a horn band together. And Billy and I were more or less freelancing around New York after Horace broke up the band, so Mike asked, told me about this situation. Would you think Billy would want to try this band? So we just, in our free time, got together, and it just kind of clicked immediately because the tunes were very open. And uh, uh, we just started to rehearse. It just clicked. Billy was such a, an amazing... Uh, uh, literally developed that style of drumming. Mm -hmm. uh, with Horace, he just utilized a normal set of drums. I, he had been in the Army previous to his gig with Horace, but he also grew up uh, in uh, drum and bugle corps. Mm. So he had amazing chops. And, uh, in fact, in Horace's band, we always used to have to say, Billy, like, kind of play a little softer, and he'd play soft for about 10 seconds, and... <laughs> but... With electric band, he could play as loud as he wanted. So we started rehearsing, and that was my exit from Art Art Blakey because uh, the last gig, you know, he's famous for these stories. But we went to uh, uh, a club in Washington D.C. and uh, uh, never got paid. Last night he just drove back to New York. We got stranded there, <laughs> and and then I didn't hear from him for weeks. And in the interim, long enough that uh, we started forming this other band. In fact, uh, we, were, we had attained a record deal with Columbia Records. We, had, we got well known enough to have a, ste a steady gig at the uh, Village Gate. We were kind of the house band. So Clive Davis came down and heard us one night and signed us to Columbia Records. Mm. Anyway, to make a long story short, all of a sudden I get a call months later from Art Blakey who says... As a, it's a art, we're leaving for Tokyo tomorrow. And I had given him my passport months earlier. Mentioned a tour of Japan or oh, no. Korea months, and I, then I never heard from him. So I said, "Look, man, I haven't heard from you for like five months, and you didn't pay the last gig. So I can't. I'm involved in another situation where I'm recording with another band now, so I can't go. We had a big fight over the phone." They eventually patched it up, and I think he got Hino to play in Japan. Mm. But uh, and uh, later on, we'd laugh about it. But that was like kind of typical jazz story. But in the interim, we uh, I was leaving for that's why I for remember this really clearly for Chicago, where we were going to record with this new band Dreams, and mm -hmm. we did the first Dreams record at a studio. I don't know why I forget the reason why we went to Chicago instead of. New York, but they, I guess they had a good deal with a studio they owned out there. And that record came out great. Mm -hmm. That was really an a innovative band. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that band seemed to have a, a real uh, point on the, on the direction of fusion and the fact that, I mean, the horn section too with you and, and Mike and Barry, it was uh, really spectacular. Yeah, it was, and uh, that it was and, uh, unique. The, the entire right. band too. And I believe that's when Will Lee moved up to New York to to be a part of that band? Yeah. Is that what well, got him actually, up there? Well, first of all, the, what made the band unique, just so the uh, readers know, uh, 
we didn't write anything down. That what separated the band from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, which was really the intent, was not to have arrangements. Mm. So we obviously needed horn parts, and we the horn parts evolved. It sounds amazing when you say it now because uh, there's not that much chance to rehearse. But we rehearsed every day. We weren't doing anything else. We'd just go to Baggy's rehearsal studios. We had managers. And they set up everything. We'd show up and we would just jam up the tunes every day. Play them over and over, tape everything on cassettes that just come out. <laughs> and uh, the, the arrangements all slowly evolve from just playing stuff over and over. And they're really amazing, I think. I, yeah. I just heard the, both records a couple of weeks ago. Just the spirit with which the horns played and Barry's harmony notes he was amazing at thinking up parts because he did all the arranging for eddie palmieri he was more experienced than me and mike mm -hmm. but this was the first time mike and i really got to play together and we were just all three of us on the same wavelength so if you can find those records on itunes or or they're they're around now you should really check them out because it's uh some special stuff yeah and absolutely it, yeah um and so around that time you also I guess began getting very busy as a studio musician here in New York, and this yeah. would be maybe late '60s, early yeah. '70s. Uh, well, it was early time. '70s, like I said, and then I'll, I'll, uh, we decided to uh, 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 to uh, hire uh, another bass player and uh, keyboard player. And Jeff and uh, Doug were great songwriters, but especially Barry was kind of the de facto band leader. Mm. Uh, I still don't know if we made the right decision. The second record's very good, too. But we ended up getting Don Grolnick to to uh, replace Jeff. And uh, eventually Will Lee uh, replaced uh, uh, Doug. Mm -hmm. uh, for a while, Chuck Rainey was actually in the band. And that was oh, okay. yeah. some live, I have some live cassettes. It was just, and killing, you know. Mm -hmm. But Will uh, came up to audition when he was 17, and he sounded just great. He got the gig in about 10 seconds. <laughs> he also sang great. So Yeah, right. right. So and he, I don't think he never went home. And, that, and we became known kind of as a, as a unit with having this uh, steady gig uh, at the, uh, at, uh, at the uh, Village Gate. On weekends, a lot of contractors came down, just people in the studio scene, because people heard about the band. And 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 we just kind of became a, known as a horn unit, and Will and Don, not so much Billy, but uh, uh, they became known as kind of a, a, a unit. They had a, another band with Chris Parker. Uh, they all lived in the same building, which eventually uh, evolved into the Brecker Brothers band, Steve mm -hmm. Kahn. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, that leads me into my next question, which I could sit here all day and listen to you talk about it, but the Brecker Brothers, certainly uh, one of the most important bands in uh, in jazz and fusion, and uh, for, me, for my money, one of the, my all-time favorite bands in any style of music. Just incredible writing, incredible playing. And, and of course, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you were writing a lot up to that point, but it seemed like at that point your writing really yeah. came to the forefront and your, your, your you know, compositional talents really came, to, came out in, in this amazing way. Um, can you just talk it, 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 as much as you like about about you know how the Brecker Brothers formed the relationship you and Mike had in terms of direction of the band, your writing for the band? Yeah. Um, it's just such an important band. We'd just love to hear what you all your all your thoughts about it. Well, it's interesting how one thing 
you know, leads to another. That's what the, the, kind of the moral of the story is. When I was uh, 15, I think, 15, 1962, I went to Stan Kenton Band Camp at Indiana University, which led me going there for college because I liked the school and the surrounding. And at that camp that summer was uh, Grolnick, uh, Keith Jarrett, Will Lee, uh, 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 Keith Jarrett, uh, uh, well, Dave Sanborn mm -hmm. was there. We became fast friends. Uh, Lou Marini mm -hmm. uh, was also there, but I didn't know Lou that well, a guy named Mitch Farber. But uh, Dave and I had a natural affinity because uh, I still had, I liked R&B and he, he had the Dave Sanborn thing even at 15. So we stayed friends. And he went to Northwestern, and I would see him every year at the Notre Dame Jazz Festival. He won a big prize one, you know, the best soloist of the festival in one year. And uh, by uh, 1973 or 74, and then he played with Paul Butterfield when I was with uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So we'd hang out. He was living in Woodstock. I'd go up there and play. And uh, the impetus behind the idea of the Brecker brothers was uh, Mike had came, come to town and Sanborn was living close by. And I thought, well, this would be really a hell of a horn section because those two guys are coming from really an original place. So yeah. I started to write with that in mind, with for the two of them, with the intent of doing a Randy Brecker solo record, actually. And, I, and we... Rehearsed steadily at Don Grolnick, Willie, that living on uh, uh, an apartment building on uh, Carmine Street. Chris Parker and Steve Kahn were also, I think, in the building. I know Chris was, and Steve lived around the corner or something. Mm -hmm. So we had what was kind of, you know, there were a lot of rehearsal big bands around town. We kind of had a rehearsal funk band. Mm -hmm. Grolnick was writing stuff, Steve was writing stuff, and I was writing stuff. Uh, with really not so much an intent to do anything in particular. I just wanted to write, and I thought it sounded great, the three horns. Like I said, with the intent of eventually do a demo, and I try to do a solo record. Uh, and we've been playing also, Mike and I, with Billy Copham. For, uh, after he hit big, he left Dreams, went with Mahavishnu, they hit it really big, and then Billy re reformed. Spectrum and had me and Mike in the band, so we were all, all during this time period playing with Billy uh, uh, professionally, along with doing studio work. Anyway, I got a call one day from a guy named Steve Backer and had a meeting with him who said that uh, uh, he had just signed a production deal with Clive Davis and Bell Records. Bell Records was going to change their name to Arista Records, mm. and and he had heard about this music I had been writing and kind of filtered through the grapevine, I guess, because we've been rehearsing for several months and I was just getting ready to do a demo for my Randy Brecker solo CD. And he said, you know, if you call this band the Brecker Brothers, I'll sign you. <laughs> and at first I said, well, no, I wanted to be, uh, it's supposed to be a solo record and there's Dave Sanborn, so his three horns are the front line, so it'll look kind of funny if you call it Record Brothers, and he's standing there. Nobody knew who Dave was really at the time, or other than, well, people did it through Paul Butterfield. But I thought about it for a couple of days, and it was he was calling me, and it was such a a, a nice opportunity. 
I didn't want to pass it up, so I kind of begrudgingly said, and it sounded good. I Nobody had ever really thought of Brecker Brothers, even though we've been playing together for years. I mean, we hadn't thought of it. You know, I remember reading Brothers Brecker once somewhere, but just nobody had thought of the name. So I said, I said call it Brecker Brothers. So we went in the studio and recorded everything under that name. And uh, the re uh, I, I got uh, uh, Harvey Mason to come in, who I had played with briefly when he was going to Berkeley. And then I heard him with Herbie Hancock, and I thought he was just great. So I thought we'd have him play and... Uh, Ralph McDonald, who was a close friend, played percussion. And then the core of the band, Chris Parker played drums, and uh, 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 Bob Mann played guitar, mm. and Gromick, me, uh, Will, and uh, Sandboy. Yeah, so amazing. And uh, you have a personal favorite of the of the Brecker Brothers records you guys did? Oh. Gee, well, they're all, you know, as a band, I love back-to-back because -back everyone contributed, and, and by then it developed into more of a band concept, you know, because everyone was busy, and, uh, you know, I didn't want just, uh, you know, I was kind of the de facto leader. Mike hadn't developed yet into being a writer. He was playing, and he didn't want to be bothered with a lot of stuff. Mm. So uh, Grolnick and I used to take care of a lot of the business, but we tried to involve the band, so there's a lot of really good uh, spontaneous things happened on the second record back-to-back, -back. and also uh, Heavy Metal Bebop with Terry Bozio, and it's a live record uh, with Neil Jason and, uh, and Barry Finnerty recorded at my father's place. And then Neil wrote a tune called East River, and we spent months recording that tune, which I thought was great, and that became kind of a hit in Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pretty big hit in, in the U.K. So I like that record. And the last record, Strap Hanging, has a lot of good play, playing on mm -hmm. it, too. Then you guys... Took a ten-year hiatus, and then I remember in 1992, the Return of the Brecker Brothers yeah. came out, and I, I, to me, that's a fantastic record, and you're writing on that and playing oh, is spectacular. Um, I don't know if you remember, but in 1995, we, uh, I was out on tour with the Stones, and we got to hear you guys in Tokyo, and oh, still, yeah, yeah. for my money, one of the best concerts I've ever been to. You and Mike just sounded like. It was not not a note that wasn't uh, just perfect, but it must have felt nice to reunite after all that time oh, yeah. for well, those was, last two records. It was great. You know, we we, we hadn't intended to take a 10-year hiatus. It's just, uh, uh, it was just supposed to be temporary, but we got busy and we possibly started families. And uh, Mike, uh, we had the club, 7th Avenue South. We could talk about that later. And mm -hmm. Mike had uh, slowly... Uh, Started playing with Mike Maneri with a band that evolved into being Steps and Steps Ahead. And he wanted to kind of play acoustically for a while. And uh, that left open a spot in Jocko's band because he kind of left. So Jocko called me to take his place. And I did that for a couple years. And I started doing solo projects. And uh, just one thing led to another. The next thing you know, it's 10 years later and we haven't played together. So yeah, yeah. we decided to reform the thing again. Well, we as uh, as fans, we are all glad you did. Those are also great records. Um, I just want to play a little short thing of name association. You've played with. I mean, it'd be easier to name the artists you haven't played with than the ones you have. It'd be a quicker uh, time for you. Too, at this <laughs> but um, anyway, just I came up with a few names that I I I'd just love to get your okay. little quick thoughts on. Um, Stevie Wonder. Oh well, I was very fortunate to play with him. In 1973, for about nine months with Steve Mendeo, my good trumpet-playing friend, had fallen off a stage and fractured his skull. In fact, Sanborn was 
in the horn section. Mm. He helped uh, get me the gig with a saxophone player named Denny Morales, who I still in touch with. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a fascinating journey for me to watch Stevie work every day. He had he was working all the classic tunes. The record I'd come out with uh, with uh, Superstition. They had recorded everything, but he was fine tuning it. And he had headphones on 24 hours a day working mm. on the record. Wow. So besides being amazing talent, a genius, he was a real steadfast, hard, serious, 24-hour-a-day musician worker. Wow, interesting. Frank Zappa. Also amazing, hard, uh, you know, stage persona was one thing, but the real Frank, not that I knew him anywhere near as well as I was with Stevie for about nine or ten months, uh, Mike and I played one week with Frank Zappa, but it became a very well-known record live in New York. Mm -hmm. I forget the place we recorded it. But he, uh, like Stevie, was focused musician, knew exactly what he wanted, wrote really hard music, but he wanted played exactly like he wrote it. He was skilled conductor and and a great showman. Mm -hmm. And his, his uh, persona as a kind of crazy, whacked-out hippie was obviously nothing like... Uh, he was in real life, but he a brilliant, brilliant performer. Mm -hmm. uh, Charles Mingus. Well, Mingus, I, I, I quite honestly didn't know well. I knew him towards the end of his life. Of course, I was a huge fan of his. My first record was Blues and Roots, which I just bought. I was probably, uh, once again, 10 or 11 years old, and I liked the way the cover looked. But that was a great record to play along with because there was a lot of group improvisation I think it had a big influence on dreams when we mm. put the, the horn parts together mm -hmm. because there was a we had that kind of loose thing in mind with that band. So he became a, 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 a musician of immeasurable influence in my life, and obviously completely brilliant. His output was so staggering. Yeah. And for years, I I played with I still do occasionally with Mingus, Dynasties, Epitaphs, and and big bands. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was a very rewarding period. Yeah, and staying with bass players, Jaco Pastorius. Well, just a true original, also great writer, uh, uh, a composer, uh, and he had a great orchestrator. He didn't really do the charts. He, uh, funny story, his, uh, he'd always introduce, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, he passed away recently. Uh, uh, it'll come to me, but he had introduced... His orchestrator as his copyist. Mm. Uh, it'll come to you. He, uh, uh, he was great, though, and uh, wrote this one person. I, I'm sorry that I can't remember his name, though, but he wrote all these amazing charts. Uh, but Jocko, as a, as a player and, and writer, was just unique. You know, yeah. it's a, uh, uh, there's a fascinating uh, uh, multiple LP uh, box set of his early life and uh, with a lot of recordings of his first gigs with with various people around miami and it was just tragic his whole what happened to him yeah yeah no doubt changed the course of electric bass for oh, the rest forever. of the time i yeah. mean he's so yeah. important and a wonderful just natural showman mm -hmm. once again yeah and last one joe henderson oh well the phantom <laughs> well another unique brilliant you know top player uh can't enough can't be said about what he contributed one of my favorite players who i got to play with thankfully off and on throughout 
the years, but he was a true enigma. Mm-hmm. Uh, never quite sure what he was thinking or what his thought process was, but he uh, had a complete unique original sound and conception. Uh, his tunes are, are an outgrowth of his improvisations and are also very, you know, you can tell a Joe Henderson tune when you hear it. And uh, had his own strange lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. brilliant, though. He spoke fluent French, German, uh, unique, brilliant individual who we lost, you know, too soon. Yeah. I was very lucky to do one of his last tours. Mm. That's great. Um, in addition to the, the many different musical hats you've worn throughout your career, you, you mentioned the club, but you and Mike owned uh, the famous 7th Avenue South for, I guess it was about 10 years. Yeah, period, something year, like that. Till we lost the lease. <laughs> what uh, What was that whole experience like, and what kind of put you know uh, put you in that direction? Well, that was uh, it, it wasn't forethought. We had we had a friend. It's a typical Brecker story. Uh, uh, we we liked a club called Boomers to hang out in. There was uh-huh. a club on Bleecker Street, and uh, the the uh, manager slash owner was a guy named uh, Bob Cooper, real warm guy. I still see him around in the village occasionally uh and w- we played there quite a bit with hal galper and we'd go there he'd always let us come in hang out and was freddie hubbard play it was a, g- a great little hangout club which closed and so w- the com- jazz community was very sad at that passing of, of, of boomers uh, several months later i guess cooper called mike and found another space to reopen a club but he needed a modest loan uh, which Mike agreed to. And then Mike called me and told me the situation. And uh, I lent, I think it was just a couple thousand bucks to get the thing going. And he had a couple other people in mind to to help back him, a lady named Kate Greenfield, who was a school teacher who had no experience in music or club, but she thought it might be a good investment. I think there was one other silent guy in the background. Anyway... The space looked nice, two floors, so we managed to get it going with a mm-hmm. relatively modest investment. Unfortunately, though, when it came to the liquor license, Coop had too many outstanding parking tickets that he hadn't <laughs> oh, no. paid. So they wouldn't let him sign on to the liquor license, and he kind of got miffed that he couldn't really be the owner of the club. So he split in a huff. Mm-hmm. But so here we are, me, Kate, and Mike, no experience uh in club owning but it was a beautiful space and she was a really hard worker so we decided let's try and do this we went in this far and try to by hook or crook keep this place open which we did for 10 years she worked there 12 hours a day Mm. and uh it ended up being really an amazing hangout with a lot of uh great music yeah when i was on uh buddy rich's band in i guess 83 and 84 we used to uh come back into New York for a break, and we'd just immediately see who was playing at 7th Avenue South. And I got to hear you and Mike with, with Bob Mincer's band. Oh, and that yeah. band at the time, I mean, it's always been an amazing band, but at the time that was just oh, yeah, electric. That was one, it was yeah, incredible. The original yeah. band, not as great now, too, but it, uh, yeah, so many years ago, Sanborn and Mike and Lawrence Feldman were in the band yeah. back then. And, uh, and yeah, it was it was, uh, it was was incredible. It was a great club to, to hear music. In the well, there were a lot of play, not a lot, but there was... Uh, uh, you know, we, we were kind of the sister club to McKell's Uptown. They had a similar kind of policy. We were musician-friendly where you could just come in. You didn't have to pay a huge entrance fee, stay all night. 
Mm -hmm. Music was upstairs in our place, and the hangout was downstairs. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it just was a chance to get... And it wasn't strictly a jazz club. Uh, we had Will. We had bands that were Hiram and uh, uh, the... Mark, the young Marcus Miller had a group called the Jamaica Boys. They were mm -hmm. a regular feature. Went and played at the club. So it was a potpourri of styles. You might see Cecil Taylor hanging out with Hiram Bullock. In fact, they did hang out a lot. So it was wow. great to get different musicians together. Yeah, that's a, that's a great place. Um, following the Brecker Brothers, you, you kind of, your, your solo career, you became even more prolific than yeah. you've been up to that point. And I've always admired all your records and, and the diversity, the musical diversity is tremendous. Um, you know, from toe to toe, hanging in the city, 34th and Lex, which I was thrilled to be a small part of, yeah. uh, Randy in Brazil. I mean, they, you, they're all exquisite, but they, they all are just so interesting. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how you approach your solo projects in terms of, you know, ideas, development, and then seeing them you know, to fruition? Well, you kind of said in a nutshell, I try, and this is hard to do and maybe not the best thing to do for your career because I think it gets people confused. I try to do really diverse things. Mm -hmm. Some consciously or sometimes something will just fall in my lap. I'll be asked to do something, and I'll say, well, let's try it, and hopefully it'll work out okay. Uh, so w one work ethic is I, I just try to write all the time, and when... Uh, without anything in particular in mind until the tunes kind of uh, I get a pile of one thing or another and this so it starts saying oh I got kind of tunes that are kind of Brazilian influence maybe that could be uh, you know put all them together and try to do a Brazilian project or so at one point I had a lot of kind of bebop tunes that uh, might be good for quintet so that became in the idiom uh, and uh Occasionally, somebody will come to me with an idea, and I'll, I'll chance it, try it. Mm -hmm. And I've had pretty good luck, I must say, uh, with with people approaching me with ideas that they follow through that I kind of help sculpt. The the Randy in Brazil uh, record is, is is a good point in that, where I kind of went sight unseen to Brazil and uh, and recorded this project with a guy who I hopefully it would work and he did his mm -hmm. name was Julio yeah, Dupra yeah. and uh, I mean I helped choose the tunes I wrote a couple tunes but he was really the producer and my Brazilian style trumpet coach you know he told me how to phrase things and it was a lot of fun to do mm. but I do like making records that don't bear any resemblance to the previous record yeah it's been from a listening standpoint it's been fantastic because you know it's going to be great but it's going to be different every time you pick up your next record um what advice would you have for a young musician who hopes to be the next Randy Brecker someday? Oh, that's a good one. Well, diversify <laughs> comes to mind. Just, you know, I, I've always had a natural curiosity about different styles of music. And that I think that's what kind of separated me from the more strictly jazz guys, you know, that maybe were more tunnel vision. And that's cool, too. You know, I mean, uh, I have a lot of respect for it. I always bring this up. Uh, when Slide Hampton came back to town, we played together a lot because I was a big fan of his, so we uh, played together at the club a lot with Cedar Walton. Mm. And I was just trying to help out. I asked him if he wanted to do any sessions, and he said no, because he wants to, he just wanted to play jazz. That was it. Mm. Um, and that's fine, too. But I always had a kind of natural curiosity about different styles and try to f fit in Zelig-wise, I guess, uh, to any situation. 
And, uh, you know, it's a competitive world out there these days. There's a lot of great jazz programs, a lot of young musicians coming to New York. So the, uh, I guess the more diversified you are, the more things you can do as far as writing, playing, teaching mm -hmm. is the way to go. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, you've done, so, I mean, your career is just incredible. Is there anything uh, on your musical to-do list that you, you haven't gotten to? Uh, or that's well, I'm trying, you know, future? trumpet keeps me busy just trying to play the thing, <laughs> especially when I have two weeks at home, you know, and i got to keep the chops up. But, uh, you know, recently uh, there's two projects in the, in the can, one which will be coming out early next year, which is a Brecker Brothers Band Reunion. Mm. And my wife's a wonderful saxophonist, so we kind of kept it in the family. Her name's Otto Rovati. And this kind of coalesced with uh, my friend Jeff Levinson, who wanted me to play at the Blue Note for a week, and kind of suggested who to call. And then I put a band together, and I realized that literally everyone in the band were former Brecker Band members. So we decided to, well, let's take a chance. Let's just call it that. And, and it... Uh, it worked out great. I wrote a bunch of new tunes. Uh, we did a live DVD that, uh, on the DVD, we do a couple old, one of Mike's tunes, Strap Hanging, and we do Skunk Funk, a couple old tunes along with some of the new ones. And uh, it just was a great gig. And the, we went in the studio after the week of the Blue Note, so the band was tight and recorded a bunch of new stuff with Will Lee and uh, Mike Stern, Dave Weckl, Rodney Holmes, Sanborn, guested on a couple mm. tunes, uh, uh, Mitch Stein, Adam Rogers, uh, and a few others. Well, so that's in the can. And then I'll just mention the next one, which will be out sometime next year. Uh, this was also an idea of, of my wife, Ada, and Jeff's, to have uh, pick 10 or so famous tunes that I played on or solos on. Uh, so we... And, and then have someone kind of rearrange everything for kind of an out group. So we picked my good friend Kenny Werner to derange a bunch of tunes by Paul. <laughs> and he did great. He wrote some I'm great sure, yeah. shorts with uh, Adam Rogers, John Patitucci, Nate Smith on drums. Uh, 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 my my daughter, Amanda, singing on some tunes. And David's, David Sanchez playing saxophone. So it's a, that's we played a week of the Blue Note. I haven't heard it since we did it, but I think we got some really good stuff on there, and that's totally unlike anything I've ever done. So that sounds very cool. Well, we'll all look forward to uh, hearing those. But uh, um, Randy, I just I can't thank you enough for your time today. I can't, especially for all of us, the inspiration that you've given us over the years. Well, from, thank you. Likewise. Well, you're very kind to say that, but. Uh, um, anyway, keep track of Randy at randybrecker.com. You can see yeah. your schedule and when your releases are coming out, but make sure to pay a visit and try to catch Randy whenever you can live. But uh, once again, thanks so much, Randy, and we will see you next time on Bone to Pick.